0: Hi everyone, I'm Michelle. I'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 to 47. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses; they are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that has not fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses." Everything in the waters that has not fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet, which, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat. The locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven footed or does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean, and all that walk on their paws, among the animals that go on all fours, are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming kind things that swarm on the ground, the rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water, and it shall be unclean until the evening. Then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten, on which water comes, shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean. Whether over oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of his carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable, it shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, and whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them, and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy." You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground, to make distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thanks, Michelle, for reading God's Word so marvelously for us this morning. And thank you, Jeremiah, for leading us in this time of worship. As we come before God and hear from Him, let us ask for His blessing and ask for His help to understand His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. We thank You for who You are. We thank You that You are a gracious God and that You are a merciful God and that You have redeemed us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. We thank you for giving us your word, your word that is not a dead word, but the living word and a life-giving word. And Father, I pray that as we delve into your word this morning, would you help us to see not just the importance of your law and to help us see its significance for all of us. Help us to see that your law is not meant to rob us of our joy, but instead it's it's meant to lead us into the fullness of joy. And so, Father, would you help us this morning as we seek to understand your word. So we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We return to the book of Leviticus. And before we jump into today's text, let me, let's just do a stock take on what we have covered so far. Now, we've looked at the first seven chapters of Leviticus and the first seven chapters covered the offerings that the people were to offer to God. And then we looked at chapters 8 to 10 that looked at what the priests were called to do and how they may go about doing it. They were called to do everything as the Lord had commanded. But as you saw last week, you know, the priests, they didn't obey everything that the Lord had commanded. Instead, they disobeyed, and as you saw last week, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were struck dead for offering something that was unauthorized. So what we saw last week was that worship was a serious thing. But at the same time, what we saw was a glimpse of grace as well. We saw a glimpse of God's grace when Aaron's sincerity was accepted, and we found that, and we find that at the end. Of leviticus chapter 10. now today we turn to a new section in leviticus which covers chapters 11 to 15 and this section in leviticus is probably the most puzzling and disorienting section in leviticus now if the whole book was not foreign enough what we find in these chapters is that it seems as if We're entering a strange new world in these chapters. And it's for this reason that most people actually skip this section entirely. They skip it because they are not able to see its relevance for the Christian life. In fact, one commentator actually says that that these chapters are are perhaps the least attractive in the whole Bible. To the modern reader, there is much in them that is meaningless, or repulsive now on the surface it might seem like it but if the bible is true if what we're told in the bible is that all of scripture is profitable for us then there must be more than meets the eye right here what we have in these chapters is that they're really fleshing out what god said to moses in leviticus chapter 10 verse 10 which says you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. So these chapters these chapters give us the different kinds of uncleanness and how a person may be cleansed from them. And chapter 11 in particular focuses on the distinction between clean and unclean animals and how Israel was to relate to these animals. And it's important because of who God is, and how we are to relate to him. And this is what we'll look at in our time together. Now I hope by the end of this message that we will not just walk away rejoicing in the fact that we cannot eat pork, okay? That we won't just say, oh, I can eat pork chop now, I can eat my char rice now, or to simply see this as free license to go on crazy exotic food adventures. I hope that we won't just walk away with that but rather i hope that we can see the importance of these food laws and the purpose of god's holy menu and so we'll look at this passage in three points we'll look at the need for directives we'll look at the seriousness of defilement and we'll see the call to true devotion so directives defilement and devotion so let's begin and we'll begin by looking at the structure of this chapter so that we can understand it now basically this text gives us two ways that we can categorize these animals the first is in terms of their habitat so for instance you have the creatures of the land from verses 2 to 8 the creatures of the water Verses nine to twelve, and then we have creatures of the air, which includes the birds. So verses thirteen to nineteen, and you have the insects from verses twenty to twenty-three. So that's one way of looking at it, and the other, the second way, is in terms of what is edible, and we find this in the in the distinction between the the clean and the unclean animals. And so this is the second way of looking at them. And broadly speaking, there are two major parts. You have Verses 2 to 23, which focuses on the animals that could or could not be eaten. And then you have verses 24 to 40 that talks about the ritual impurity that you will get when you come into contact with animal carcasses. And then in light of the uncleanness, how the uncleanness may be addressed. And then verses 41 to 43 kind of reiterate something that came before. And then verses 44 to 47 gives us concluding remarks on this passage. Now as a whole, we need to see these laws as directives. They are directives for Israel on how to relate to the different animals. And in some ways, we can still see this in various cultures today, and such as the Jewish culture. And this is where the kosher diet comes in. The word kosher is actually from a Hebrew root word, which means proper or suitable and Jews around the world, they still keep this diet, many Jews still do that and in fact other people have actually included kosher foods as part of their diets. Now the question is this, you know, what is it that makes this list proper? Or specifically we can ask, you know, what makes an animal clean or unclean. Now, there are different explanations that have been given, but I'll just highlight three this morning. The first explanation is that the unclean animals are unhygienic. That the unclean animals are unhygienic. Now, how did the Israelites know that? Well, they didn't know, because they didn't have the scientific knowledge to know that. But God knows, and God is the God who's omniscient, He's the God who is all-knowing. And because God knows all things, therefore, He made known to them the food that they should eat and shouldn't eat, because God knows, you know, which animals have all of this like bad bacteria in them. So that is the hygienic explanation. Well, the problem is this: that if you take the clean animals and you don't cook them properly, they can actually be harmful to you as well. So it's not just the unclean animals, but even the clean animals, if you don't process them properly, they will be harmful to you as well. And the thing is this, if this was really God's so-called divine diet for us, then why did Jesus in Acts chapter 10 overturn it? He overturned it and he told Peter to eat the unclean animals. So if this was really God's divine diet for us, what Jesus did in Acts chapter 10 wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So it seems like this explanation doesn't really explain it. Another explanation is to say that the unclean animals were associated with pagan worship, that they were linked with pagan worship, or that they represented pagan gods. And for the Israelite to show faithfulness to God, to God's covenant, they had, or he or she has to shun all of these animals by not touching them and by not eating them. And the problem with this explanation is this, that it explains too little. It explains too little to be of real use. What I mean by that, if you look at the animals like cattle, you look at sheep, and you look at goats, you know, all of these are the so-called clean animals, and they were considered clean in Israel. But these same animals were used as sacrifices in pagan cultures as well in the surrounding pagan cultures. So to say that they were to be avoided because of all these pagan associations, it doesn't really cut it as well. Now, there's a third explanation which says this, that the distinction between the clean and the unclean animals is one of symbolism. That is one of symbolism. And the symbolism at play is this. is distinguishing between what counts as normal and what counts as abnormal. So one commentator, he puts it this way. He says that the animals that conform to what is normal for their type are clean, whereas those that are imperfect members of their class are unclean. So what do I mean by that? So for instance, you have, again, the sheep and the goats. These are the standard and these are the edible land animals. And these, these animals are considered clean, OK? So any, animal, any land animal that conform to these standards are considered clean, while the animals that do not conform to these standards are considered unclean. And it's the same for the sea creatures. You have the fishes that have fins and they have scales. These are considered the norm. But the fishes, those that dwell in the sea, and they do not have fins, and they do not have scales, these are considered abnormal. And thus, they are considered unclean. And this is what the the symbolism explanation actually gets at. Now, to be sure, when you look at Leviticus chapter 11, it doesn't actually tell us why the animals were classified in a particular way. Although, if you want to admit it, some explanations are more persuasive. But I think there's something that is clear. What is clear is that Israel was called to follow these directives. They were to live in a way that was different from the rest of their neighbours. So their neighbours could eat all of these animals for all they want. But for Israel, they had to live in a distinctly different way. And why is that? Well, if you we look at verse 44 of Leviticus chapter 11, it says this, Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I and holy, So God's people, they were called to be holy because their God is holy. And in fact, what will happen is this, that the people around them, the people will know that Israel belonged to God by the food which they ate. And we need to recognize that Israel, they were not just called to eat whatever they want. Uh, they were not just called to live however they like. Because after all, if there was nothing to direct them, if they just followed the rest of their pagan neighbours, then how would that distinguish them from their neighbours? How would people know that they belong to the God of Israel? And similarly, this is why we have directives for the Christian life. That God has given us His law in His word to direct our footsteps. And as we read in the call to worship this morning from Psalm 119 verse 105, that the word, that God's word is a lamp to my feet, to our feet, and a light to our path. God's word directs our paths. And as the Westminster Confession put it, which is one of the documents that we subscribe to as a church, it says that the law of God is a rule of life. It tells us What is the will of God? It tells us how God wants us to live. And without the law, without the law to direct us, we will not know how to live in a way that pleases God. We will not know how to help people to see the very God that we follow, the very God that we believe. Because again, after all, if we live like the rest of the world, what difference does that make? You know, What difference does it make whether we follow the God of Israel or other people? And it's for these reasons we need to be directed. We need to be directed by God's directives so that God may be honoured and He may be seen for who He is. So these are the directives that were given to Israel on what they should eat, what they can eat, and what they should avoid. And these are important to follow lest they became unclean through defilement. So this is our second point. Now look at how many times the word unclean Appears in Leviticus chapter 11 is used 32 times to describe the animals that the Israelites were to avoid touching Or eating and most of these instances appear in verses 24 to 40 Which looks at how you can address the situation when you came into contact with a dead animal And when an Israelite touches one of these carcasses, it, it tells us that they would become unclean So what is the solution? How can they address that? Well, it says if a person touched an animal carcass, and it doesn't matter whether the animal is clean or unclean, when they touch the carcass, it tells us that they need to, they, they become unclean, they need to wash their clothes and they'll be unclean till evening comes. If their clothing came into contact with these carcasses, it tells us that they, these clothes need to be washed, and they will be unclean till evening comes. If an earthenware vessel, an oven or a stove, came into contact with one of these carcasses, they have to be broken in pieces and this tells us the extent that defilement needs to be dealt with it tells us that defilement has to be removed from god's people now it may be helpful for us to just ask the question what does it mean for something to be unclean you know what does uncleanness actually mean in this context there was a cultural anthropologist by the name of mary douglas who wrote extensively on the customs of Leviticus. And Douglas pointed out that the idea of being unclean here in Leviticus is similar to the idea of finding dirt. And what, I, what she meant was this, that the dirt is not something that is actually inherently disgusting, but rather it's something that is out of place. So let me, let me illustrate this way. If you find soil, if, if you find soil in the middle of a garden, okay, a garden with plants and all of that, and you find soil in there, is that considered normal? well it's considered normal because it, that is where it's supposed to be at, right so it's totally appropriate to find soil in the garden. Now, if you go to someone 's living room and you find just a clump of soil or a clump of dirt in the middle of the living room, is that normal? well, it's not normal, right because it's inappropriate for the soil. To be there, and it's inappropriate because it has actually crossed some boundaries. It's not supposed to be there. And what usually happens is that we'll just clean up, right? We'll clean up the place and we'll make sure that we'll remove the dirt or the soil immediately. And basically, that's the idea of uncleanness here in Leviticus. That there is something that is out of place and it has disrupted the holy space of God. That something is out of place. And what are the consequences? of having uncleanness in the holy space of God. Well, we actually see this in another term that recurs in Leviticus chapter 11, and that's the word detestable. It's the word detestable. It's used nine times throughout this passage, and it's used specifically in verse 43 to describe what a person becomes when he or she comes into contact with a swarming creature. This tells us that when a person becomes unclean, that person becomes detestable in the eyes of God. Now when you hear that, it might sound a little harsh. It's like, whoa, okay, it's just a little that." like, why did I become detestable? But what it shows us is actually this. It shows us that defilement is incompatible with holiness. It shows us that defilement is incompatible with holiness. And when a person becomes unclean, he becomes detestable in the eyes of God, and that person is not able to come before the presence of the Lord, lest he or she becomes undone. A biblical scholar, David the Silva, he puts it this way. He says that pollution, or we can translate, say it as defilement, is dangerous in the presence of a holy God. It disqualifies the person from entering that presence, and should he or she be foolish enough to stand before the holy God, in an unclean state, threatens obliteration. That person is threatened with obliteration. In other words, what defilement does is this it causes us to lose access to a holy God. It causes us to lose access to a holy God. And there's something else, I'm not sure if you noticed this. Did you notice that the unclean animals, none of them are actually acceptable sacrifices? to God. Now we looked at it in the previous chapters, you know, you have like sheep and rams and goats and all of these animals that were offered as sacrifices. But none of the unclean animals, the lizards, the insects, and all of this, like the vultures and eagles, none of these unclean animals are given as acceptable sacrifices to God. Now what does that mean for us? It means this. It means that whatever is unacceptable to God has to be unacceptable to God's people as well. That whatever is unacceptable that's not accepted before God has to be unacceptable to us as well. Defilement has no place before a holy God. And this actually points us to something spiritual. There's a spiritual reality that's in place here. Oh, it's interesting when you come to the New Testament, when you come to Mark chapter 7, we have an episode where Jesus was telling the masses about what's the thing that truly defiles a person. You know, he was responding to the Pharisees and responding to the scribes who saw that the disciples were eating without washing their hands. And when the disciples sought to clarify you know, all of these things, you know, what, what did they mean? This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 19. Do you not see? that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. And then we're told in parentheses in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, that Jesus declared all foods clean. And so what Jesus is doing here is that he's removing the distinction between the clean and the unclean animals. So it's no longer the ritual impurity that comes from unclean animals that defiles A person. And this helps us to see that the food laws of the Old Testament, they no longer apply to Christians today. And there are implications of this. And we can see this from another passage in the New Testament in Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, you know, Jesus appeared to Peter and he told Peter to eat all of the animals that appeared before him. And then Peter refused. He's like, no, I can't eat all of these unclean animals. I can't do that. And notice how Jesus responded to him. Well, look at Acts chapter 10, verse 15. This is what Jesus said. What God has made clean, do not call common. So this is what Jesus said. And then later in the chapter, Peter actually applied this principle when he came to the house of Cornelius. And who is Cornelius? Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is a Gentile. Now, we need need to know this. That before this, the Jews and the Gentiles, they were separated. They were separated by the laws that God gave to Israel. And now, you come to Acts chapter 10, you see something that's, that's wholly remarkable. What we find is that now fellowship is possible between a Jew and a Gentile. And you look at Acts chapter 10, verse 28. Look at what Peter says. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. You see, before this, the Gentiles, those who were outside of the commonwealth of Israel, they were considered unclean because they were not following the laws that God set for Israel. But now, something has happened. Now, the barrier between the Jew and the Gentile has been removed. Those barriers have been removed. There's no longer a wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile. And this means that the Gentiles who were once far off, now they're no longer far off from God. They're no longer far off from the commonwealth of God. But now, they have been brought near. And so it's no longer the foot laws that separate us. So what's the thing that actually defiles us? Well, if we go back to Mark chapter 7, if we look at verses 21 to 23, this is what Jesus said. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In other words, the thing that truly defiles us is sin. The thing that truly defiles us is sin. It's not the food that we eat, but a sin that defiles us. It's sin in our hearts and it's from this, from our evil hearts, that all of these vices and all of these evil thoughts emerge. It's sin that separates us from God and it's sin that truly defiles us. And friends, we need to recognise the seriousness of sin. We need to recognise how sin has affected every part of our lives. It's the very thing that separates us from God. It's the very thing that disrupts our relationship with Him. And since our relationship with God is broken, this affects every other aspect of our lives. And I just want to point out that it actually disrupts our relationship with one another and even those among Christians. You see, rather than enjoying the relationship that God has given to us, you know, the relationship that was meant to obtain, like what we saw with the Jew and the Gentile, we find our relationships with one another being disrupted. Now, there are two dangers that we need to be mindful of. The first is the lack of trust the first is the lack of trust towards one another because of the nature of sin we have made it difficult for us to trust one another we have become suspicious towards one another. And because of that, you know, it makes it difficult for us to be authentic and we resort to pretense. We resort to evasion in our relationship. And so authenticity, this whole idea about relational authenticity, that becomes far away from all of us. And that is one danger. But another danger is this, that we, that, that we have relationships, that we so price authenticity that it comes at the cost of truth relationships that we have comes at the cost of truth because we don't want to have disagreements with one another because we don't like that and so what we do is that we simply affirm one another and the thing is this that you know when people are affirmed they are quite happy with it and when people affirm me I'm also quite you know kind of happy with it you know so it's kind of mutual because what it does to me is that it basically leaves my good image intact right as long as there's no disagreement, you know my image, that original image, remains intact. And what happens is that the community becomes a place where there's no correction. There's no correction and there's simply affirmation. And so these are two dangers that we can face even in the church. Now this doesn't mean that we should just go ahead and condemn people, okay? That someone does something wrong and we just condemn the person. Because after all, can we point out the speck in other people's eye and fail to see the lock in our very own eyes. And we need to recognize that we are not God. We are not God, and so we cannot say final judgment. We cannot pronounce final judgment on other people. But at the same time, though we do not condemn, we do not condone as well. We do not condone other people's wrongdoings. When someone does something wrong, we need to see that as really wrong. We need to see that as something that's very wrong, especially when it's done in the context of the church. And so what are we to do as believers? Well, what we can do is to allow this community to be a place of forgiveness and grace we can allow this place to be a place of forgiveness and grace, that we can come and when we commit wrongdoings, we can say, that is wrong, but I forgive you. Someone might do something wrong, but I forgive you. And let's work together, let's work together towards repairing that relationship. So we are not coming to a relationship where it's a dog-eat-dog world, where we just try and destroy one another. But it's a place where we can admit our wrongdoing, and it's a place where mercy, where grace, where forgiveness, where patience may be put on display. And so rather than allowing the church to be a place where we're just affirming one another's wrong and then everyone is just doing the wrong thing and we you're not daring to say anything we should allow the church as francis francis Schaeffer puts it allow the church to be the final apologetic that the church was meant to show the world that the world will see that yes we take sin seriously that we recognize that sin is wrong but we recognize that the grace of god is greater still that the grace of God is much greater. And that is the witness, that is the testimony that we are called to show the world. And finally, what do these food laws do? They actually help us to see what devotion to God actually looks like. Now earlier we saw that the laws were given to reflect the holiness of God, And yet, when you look at all of these regulations, they can be quite overwhelming, right? They can be overwhelming, especially when they are taken on their own. So, given all of this, you know, what is the thing that actually motivates the Israelite to obey the precepts of God? Well, you actually find this in Leviticus chapter 11 and in verse 45, this is what it says. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be... Your God. In other words, what it means is this the reason why the Israelites were called to live by these precepts is because they have been redeemed by God Himself. They have been redeemed from Egypt. And so these laws were not given so that you know God's people can follow them in a very graceless way and to obey them in a legalistic way, but rather they have to see that these laws were given in the context of their redemption. They were given in the context of the grace that God has shown them, which means that grace came before the giving of the law. In other words, what we find in these laws is this, that they actually remind Israel that Israel of who they belong to. They were reminded that they have been called, that they have been redeemed by God. We need to recognize that identity comes before duty. And so when we talk about obedience, obedience comes not from a place of legalism, but it comes from a place of gratitude. It comes from a place of giving thanks to God for His salvation, for His salvific work. And it's the same thing, not just for the Israelites, But it's the same thing for the Christian believer as well. And one of the things we should recognise is that as a believer, as a Christian believer, we are in a much more privileged position than the Old Testament Israelite, that we are in a position, we are on this side of the cross, where we are looking back at what Jesus has done for us. While the Old Testament Israelite was still looking forward, was still anticipating the greater redemption that was yet to come. And yet, for all of us, just like the Israelites, we can so easily forget. We can so easily forget about the grace that we received from God. And this is why the law of God was given to us. The law was given to remind us of the grace that we have received. And so the Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham, he puts it this way, the ancient food laws were designed to curb such forgetfulness. Because they are prone to forget. Therefore, they were given this laws to remind them that they have been redeemed. And we need to remember that as believers, that we have been redeemed, that God's grace came for us. That came first before we were called to obey. And even in our obedience, we are called to do so with gratitude in a grateful way. And we cannot see the Bible simply as a rule book. It is not just a book of rules because if we see the Bible simply as a book of rules apart from God's salvation, then we have every reason to think that it's all about us. right? We have every reason to think that it's all about pulling up my bootstraps, that it's all about me working for it. And in fact, it is this kind of thinking that actually distorts the law of God. You see, if the law... It's meant to remind us of the grace of God. And if legalism is a distortion of the grace of God, then this means that legalism is a distortion of the law of God. When we come into the when we approach the law and we view it with legalistic lens, what we are doing is that we are distorting the law of God. It actually separates us from the God who is gracious to us, who has been gracious to us, and will continue to be gracious to us. It separates the law from the gracious law giver. It becomes abstract, and it becomes impersonal. And the theologian Gerhardus Voss, he puts it this way. He says that legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. And this is what legalism does to us. It separates the law from the law giver. And instead, we need to be reminded of God's grace in our salvation. And truth be told, isn't this what we're reminded of? Whenever we come to the Lord's table, you know, whenever we take Holy Communion, because this is something that we are called to observe as believers. We are called to observe it until Jesus returns. And this whole purpose is to remind us of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. This, The Lord's Supper is meant to remind us of what Jesus has secured for us. And this is why communion is for believers and not for unbelievers because it reminds us of the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord's Supper is not just some random thing, some random ritual that we go through each time, but it reminds us of what God has already done. It reminds us that when we commune with Christ, we are communing with our benefactor. We are communing with our benefactor, Jesus Christ. He has given us the privilege to share in this holy meal, that this is the divine menu that God has given to us. And whenever we take it, whenever we take the Lord's Supper by faith, we are reminded of God's grace It shows the world, when we do so, of the God that we're devoted to. And what it does, it actually invites people. It invites people to be a part of this meal, that when they come to Jesus by faith, they can partake in this meal as well. And this is what true devotion looks like. Salvation comes before obedience. And this was the purpose of God's holy menu. Now, friends, as we come to a close, we need to recognize something: that all of these regulations, you know, the idea of God's law, all of this, is difficult for us to do. Now, even as a new Christ, as a Christian, even though we are not required to obey all of the food laws, the fact is this: that we are called to live in a certain way. We are called to live in a way that will reflect the holiness of God. But yet, as we've seen, being clean is not just about obeying God externally, but rather it's about our hearts. It's about who we are on the inside. And the problem is that we are deceitful. Our hearts are deceitful, and our hearts are desperately sick. And so the question for us is this. You know, how do we get from a place of being spiritually unclean to a place of being spiritually Clean. You know, what is the food that we need that will make us right with God? And the food that we need is the bread of life, Jesus Christ Himself. We need to feed on Christ Himself. In John chapter 6, in verse 35, you know, Jesus said this to His disciples He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then afterwards, in verses 53 to 56, this is what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him and friends this is what we're reminded of that god has come to us that jesus christ has come to us he has died on the cross For us, and what we are called to do is to feed on Him, that we are called to believe in Him. And this is what we're reminded of whenever we take the Lord's Supper that whenever we come and commune with Christ, we're reminded that there is life, that there is life when we come and when we believe in Jesus Christ. And we can only come to God, the Holy God, through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the very thing that we express whenever we pray the prayer of humble access. Grant us therefore, our gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dearest son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. This is what we're reminded of whenever we come to the Lord's table, that we need to feed on Christ, and we are to do so by faith. And the good news is this, that none of us are too defiled. None of us is too defiled. That we are not too defiled to come before our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And the truth is this, that not only are we not too defiled, but that Jesus has become defiled for our sake. He has become defiled for our sake. When He took on our sins and when He died on the cross, for us and he did all of that so that we may be clean in him so that we may come before God and so friends as we come to the Lord's table we we'll should do so in a moment as we come before our God let us be reminded of what we have let us be reminded that you know what we have here is a privilege that we can come to Jesus because of what he has done for us and so as we commune with him let us be reminded and Let us be nourished and let our hearts be renewed once again of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ, who is our true food. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that it's true Jesus that we can have access to your throne of grace. And it is true Jesus that the walls of hostility are now broken down between us and father as we share in this holy meal together may we be reminded of what jesus did for us may we be reminded of what he did when he sacrificed himself and died on the cross that he is the lamb who bore our sins away and it is his wounds that gave us life and so we pray before you and we pray that you prepare all of our hearts now as we commune with our risen king Jesus Christ, and so we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.